I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. We're going to read the first eight verses, and we're going to look in particular at verses six or four through six, but reading the first eight verses. Now, just a reminder of where we've come from. Um, we have seen Israel come through the Red Sea. We've seen them face some hardships with regard to water and food and even enemies in the wilderness. Last time we saw how Moses' father-in-law Jethro urged him to raise up magistrates of various degrees who could guide the people in their hardships and in their trials with him as the prophet of God instructing and guiding the magistrates that they might be just and faithful in their judgments. And now Israel stands at the foot of Mount Sinai. And we read, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. Amen. Beloved congregation of God in Christ, who are you? It's a pretty big question, isn't it? Who are you? I mean, you could respond by telling me your name. That's probably where most of us would start. But that's just the surface, right? A name is merely a symbol that points you to a particular individual. It doesn't really reveal who they are. So after telling me your name, what would you say? Who are you? Have you ever met someone who was so completely absorbed by what he or she did that that was their answer? Maybe it was a truck driver whose life was consumed by trucks or a fireman who lived, slept, breathed the fire service. Maybe it was a rancher whose, whose clothes and vehicles and house all screamed rancher. The same could be said of some farmers or nurses or teachers or journalists. What defines them is what they do. Their clothes all bear some badge of identification to their work. Every conversation you have with them ultimately comes around to that calling, that career that so impassions them. They are so identified with their work that within five minutes of meeting them, you have no doubt that is who they are. 
identity, that which sets us apart, that which defines us. Now listen, there's nothing at all wrong with being a trucker, a rancher, a nurse, a journalist, a fireman. All of those are respectable callings. And it's good, it's a great blessing when we enjoy the work to which God has called us. But as Christians, our identity must not be tied to our work. Because there is something bigger, there is something infinitely more essential to which our identity should be tied. And that is what the passage before us this evening is all about. Now, it's important that we consider that for a few reasons. For one thing, unless we grasp our identity properly, our life is sure to be unbalanced. We're going to focus ourselves, pour ourselves out on things that, in the whole scheme of eternity, don't matter that much. We won't grow in the ways God wants us to grow. We won't become all that he calls us to become. For another thing, unless we identify ourselves properly, we will waste many an opportunity to point people to what matters. We'll waste all these opportunities of the people that God puts before us whom, whom we could introduce to Christ. And instead we'll talk about stuff. And it's crucial that we grasp this, especially in light of what we witnessed just a little bit ago with regard to Thea. We look around us in this congregation. We have been blessed with many covenant children. And they need to know as they're growing up what it is that should identify them, what it is that should set them apart. And if when, if when they look on us, they see that dad is identified by his work or dad is identified by his hobbies or mom is identified by her friends or by her pastimes or if they see in us that we are identified by these lesser things, that's what will identify them as they grow up. But if they see that we're identified by something greater, something eternal, well, that's going to influence how they see themselves, isn't it? And for better or worse, our kids are looking at us to understand how they should identify themselves. Oh, at times they might reject it because that's if that's what dad says, then that's not what I want. But they're still watching. And very often they'll turn back from that rebellion with shameful faces, recognizing that that was wrong. This passage is absolutely necessary because it shows us what our identity ought to be if we would be those who are pleasing to God. If we truly are the people in whom God delights, this is what our identity ought to be. And God calls us to not just acknowledge, not just understand, but embrace that identity. And so that's our theme this evening. God calls his people to embrace their new identity. 
And it's an identity that is rooted, first of all, in recalling God's faithful deliverance. That's where our identity, as Israel's identity of old, needs to start. Notice the focus of this text. Moses is called to take a message to Israel on God's behalf. The Lord wants them to realize. Remember, he's about to set before them his law. And he's about to call them to a unique lifestyle of worship. But before he can do any of that, they need to know who they are, right? For generations, literally, they have been identified as that worthless group of slaves in Egypt. That people that we count as just a half a step above livestock, maybe. They lived in the midst of their misery, and God wants them to recognize they are not that. They are his people. They are different. They are precious to him. And to see that, well, first, he gives this message to Moses, who's to pass it on to them. And the start of that message is, remember what you've seen. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. They were firsthand witnesses to the power of God in judgment. That's important. Boy, that's a message we don't think about enough today. But our God is the judge. He is the one before whom absolutely every man and woman who has ever lived one day will stand and give answer for all that they have done, all that they have said, all that they have thought or desired. People don't like to think about that. Oh, my God is the God of love. Well, yes, he is the embodiment of love, but he's also the embodiment of justice. And so for every good deed and every merciful thing you've done, but also for every wicked thing you've done, for every hard thing you've done, for every bad thing you've done, you're going to stand before God. They saw it vividly. They were firsthand witnesses to the plagues that God poured out in condemnation against the false gods of Egypt. They, their ears heard the cries from every household as the firstborn sons died in retribution, just retribution, for their enslavement of God's firstborn son. And they witnessed as the water poured over the enemies who sought to claim for themselves the people whom God said were his. They witnessed God's judgment, but more than that, they saw how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Speaking in metaphor, obviously, God wants them to see they were held captive by a world power. One of the greatest nations of the age, one of the greatest military mights of the generations. A people that it was inconceivable that someone could escape from them, that a slave population could, and yet God decimated the land, utterly annihilated their strength, removed their entire army for the sake of his people. He brought them out from there. How much did Israel have to labor? How much did they have to train? How much did they have to fight to escape that land? Not at all. God did it every last bit. They just stood there and watched 
The worst, the most they had to do was walk in the direction that God sent them. And even that didn't make sense to them. God did it all. And not just as a human rights effort. He wasn't simply causing them to escape from mistreatment. No, I brought you to myself, he says. Notice they haven't gotten to the promised land. There was no way they could look about and say, as a modern scholar might, well, this was, this was an attempt to make up for the past injustices of former generations, taking this people that had been enslaved and mistreated and giving them the riches. No, there's none of that. They're out in the wilderness. The only thing they have, everything they have, is the Lord. His presence, His might, His insights, and the riches that He's given them from Egypt, which they can't spend anywhere because they're not anywhere near civilization. He has given them Himself entirely by His grace. They are to recall God's faithful deliverance. That is the heart, that is the foundation of their identity. They need to recognize that they are a people who are so loved and cherished by God that he heard their groaning. He remembered his promises to their forefathers and he did everything necessary to rescue them. Folks, that's us. We are no different. When we baptized Thea, this is, this is the witness of a bath. Kids, do you take a bath when you're not? Maybe I shouldn't ask that. Do you take a bath when you're not dirty? Kids never think they're dirty, right? But mom and dad say, hey, go take your bath. Why? Because you're filthy. You've been playing outside. You've been sweating. You've been running around. You're filthy. We have church tomorrow. Go take your bath, right? Baptism says the same thing to our children and to us. You were filthy. You were not worthy of being in the presence of God, but God. What can Thea do about it? She doesn't even recognize what the difference between filthy and clean is. Right? God comes to us when we don't even know that we're miserable. When we don't even recognize who He is. And He works in our hearts to cast off the chains of Satan and sin and the fear of death that held every single person captive. He's the one who opens our minds to understand the truth of His Word. He's the one who opens our hearts so that we can understand the sin that holds us captive. He's the one who imparts the truth of the Gospel and the faith to take hold of it. And we are witnesses, every one of us. We're witnesses. We've seen lives changed and transformed. We've seen brothers and sisters come to God in death without fear, without doubt, without worry. That's supernatural. That's the work of the Holy Spirit as God brings people out of their slavery, bears them up on eagles' wings and brings them to Himself. That's who we are. That is our identity. Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, just like everybody else, but God. What a beautiful phrase. But 
God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And having saved us, he has been bringing us day by day through the power of his word, through the indwelling presence of his spirit, through the discipleship of the saints. He has been drawing us through the wilderness to himself. That is where our identity must start, recalling God's faithful deliverance, recalling that unlike everything the world tells us, we are not self-made men and women. We are not to rely on ourselves. We are not to be true to ourselves. We do not rest in what we think of ourselves. We rest in what God has said of us, what God has done for us. That's the lesson you teach Thea. That's the lesson that all of our kids need to hear. It's not because you're such a special little star. It's because God is merciful that he chose and called and delivers you. That's where we start. But there's more. Because the second thing he calls Israel to do is to reveal their covenant faith. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, on the basis of what you've seen, on the basis of what you know, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. That's the start of a conditional phrase. Kids, you know what a conditional phrase is. If you go clean your room tonight, you can have dessert. Right? The conditional there is if you clean your room. If you don't clean your room, you don't get dessert. Right? Well, this is the start of a conditional. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. Now remember, this is not saying that Israel can earn anything before God. They witnessed his deliverance. He's the one who did it all. They didn't raise a finger to save themselves, to deliver themselves, to bring themselves to God. But they are called to respond. Right? Our children cannot. Not one of us can do anything to save ourselves. But we are called to respond. And if we don't respond, woe to us. Right? We're rejecting the glorious, gracious work that he does to save us. We must never do that, but we must respond. And Israel's response indicates to us what that should look like. First, he tells them, you must obey my voice. He wants his children to submit to him. Just as every parent here wants his children to submit to him. Israel is called to listen and to obey. Just as Jesus himself said in John 15, verse 10, he said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. That's not a way that we earn God's love. We could never earn God's love. But if we recognize how graciously God has treated us, we will obey him demonstrating that we have faith in Christ, demonstrating that we're united to him. Back in chapter 14, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. A little before that, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, by obeying him, 
By keeping His commandments, we're demonstrating we belong to Him and we love Him and we're thankful for all that He's done. And therefore, we will not only obey Him, but keep His covenant. What's that mean? Moses gives us some insight into that in Deuteronomy 7. He says in in Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. He keeps covenant and steadfast love. You therefore shall be careful to do the commandments and statutes and rules that I command you today. Follow God's commandments or obey his law, keep his covenant. Because again, this is how we show that we trust him. If you trust your father, you'll do what he tells you to do. It won't always make sense to you at the time. But you'll do what he tells you to do. My dad was an electrician. He was really comfortable with heights. I was not. But he was insistent that his boys were going to learn how to be comfortable working on heights. One day he sent me up this pole that we had next to the house. It was about six inches around, maybe. You get up there about 25 feet, it gets pretty swayy. It gets pretty uncomfortable. And I froze. Well, that's not good. So he gave me a minute to see if I'd figure it out on my own, and I didn't. Finally, he said, listen to me. Don't look down. Don't look up. Close your eyes and listen to me. You want to get down? Take your right foot and go down 18 inches. There's a step. Trust me. And I closed my eyes, and it took all of my will, and I put my foot 18 inches down, and there was a step. He said, keep your eyes closed. Take your left foot. Uh, Just do it. Put your left foot 18 inches down. There's a step. And he guided me. I had to listen to his voice and trust him. I didn't want to. I didn't want to move. But I had to trust him and trust that he knew what was best. That's what keeping his covenant means. It means even when we don't understand why this is good, even when we don't grasp how this could be beneficial, we obey him trusting that our Father knows what is best. That's what Israel was called to do. They couldn't understand where God was leading them across this arid wilderness. They couldn't understand why he would make them wander in this weird way. But they had to believe that he knew what he was doing, that he knew what was best. And so must we. That needs to be bound up to our identity. That we so love God, that we so trust God, that we're so grateful to God, we're going to go where he leads us, we're going to do what he tells us. The world will call us absolute fools, and they do. They will call us backwards. They will call us holy rollers. They will think, say that we're hypocrites who think we're better than them. And we know that's not the truth. But God says you can't worry about what they say. You need to so rest in me, so trust me, 
that you will do what I tell you to do, no matter what they say. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He's not saying, if you don't obey me, you don't deserve to enter heaven. No. He makes it very clear in places like Romans 10. It's only by what Christ has done, received through faith, that we enter the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus is saying, if your faith is real, you're going to trust me, even when it's hard, even when you're mocked, even when you don't understand, you're going to follow me because you trust me. That has to be bound up with our children's identity, that they trust him even when they don't get what he's doing. However, the emphasis to God's word to Israel here is not obey. That's not the emphasis. The emphasis is identity. Understand your identity. Recognize your identity. And in that identity, rejoice. And so God concludes his message for Israel with a call to his people to rejoice in God's covenant promises, which is our third point. Verse 5, he says, if I get there... Verse 5, he says, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, in other words, if you will trust me, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. That's stative. You shall be. This is who you are. This is your identity. You shall be my treasured possession. The Hebrew word there has a sense of something that has great intrinsic value, right? Your great-grandma's wedding ring, something you can't put a price on, right? You shall be to me my treasured possession, something in which I delight, something that I hold near my heart. God says that to us. Because you trust me, because you have been delivered by my son Jesus, you shall be to me my treasured possession. Notice what he says next. You shall be to me, be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Even the people that reject him, that mock him, that deny him outright, they belong to him. They're His. And even though we are not inherently any better, He chooses to love us and delight in us and make us His own. Isn't that amazing? That should leave us with slack-jawed wonder that He chose the likes of us, but not just to be His possession. Look, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Priests are those who are set apart to worship, to honor, to serve God. All Israel was to be set aside as a people who were devoted to honoring and glorifying God. What mattered to him wasn't their reputation among men. It wasn't the glorious cities they would build the magnificent farms they would cultivate, all of that could be done unto His glory. But that's the key. 
What mattered to him was that they would bring him glory, that they would devote it all to him, that they would do it all in his name and for his honor. They would be to him a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Kids, what does it mean to be holy? It means to be set apart to God, to be uniquely His. That's what he said to Israel. You shall be holy. All people of the earth are mine, and you shall be uniquely set apart for me. You shall be the people in whom I delight and who delight in me. That's what he says to us. Now, what did you do to earn that? What did Israel do to earn that? Absolutely nothing. They were slaves in Egypt. They cried out in their weakness. They said, save us. We can't do a bit of it. And they didn't. He delivered them entirely by His grace, by His power, by His might. He called them to trust Him, to follow Him, to love Him. And then He said, you're mine. All they could do, all, literally all they could do was to receive it. And to worship Him in response. And that's exactly, that's both what He desired of them and what He by... His grace led them to do. Look at verse 8. Moses dutifully did what God commanded. He went down the mountain. He told the people what God said. And all the people answered together. Stop there a minute. Notice that. This covenant, this gospel, it's not about a bunch of separated individuals. Man, that's American, isn't it? It's all about what you and Jesus do. It's all about you and God. It's not. We're part of a people. We are the new Israel in Christ. In fact, what God says here about Israel, He says in 1 Peter 2 about the church, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His possession. That's what He says of the church. Hearing that together, you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Together they answered, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. In other words, they embraced it. They said, that's our identity, that's who we are. And we will live accordingly. That's our calling. We took a vow together this evening to help David and Hannah raise Thea up to know who she is. That she's one of God's children. That she is part of that kingdom of priests, part of that holy nation, which is no longer the physical nation of Israel. They forfeited that when they rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, those who did. Those who continued as Israel were those who accepted Christ, both from among the Jews and from among the Gentiles. And that means today the holy nation, the kingdom of priests is the church drawn from Israel and all the nations. And together we respond, we hear, we obey, we trust. Our calling is to remind Thea of that. Our calling is to remind all of these children of that and one another of that. And when we start... It happens. 
when we start acting like those of the world, when we start finding our identity in what we do, in the things we enjoy, in the work we perform, we need to remind each other that's not who you are. You are part of a a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, the people who were not a people, but who have now been made the people of God. The people in whom the Creator, the Deliverer, delights, for whom He sent His beloved Son that you might be saved. That's who we are. That's what stands at the heart of our identity. And that is what must stand at the heart of us. So let us... Sounds simple. But it's not. That's our assignment by this text. Is to hear what Moses said to the people ourselves and to wholeheartedly, earnestly, honestly say, we have heard and we will do. We have heard what God has said to us and we will embrace it as ours. And we will live in the light of that. And then let us make it our daily prayer that God would transform our lives so that the people who know us, when someone asks, who is that person? What is it that defines him? What is it that sets him apart? Their first thought will be, he follows Christ. He's one of those Christians. Or even, I don't know what he is, but he's different. Because they see in us the image of Christ, the true priest, the true holy one. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have chosen us despite our unworthiness, despite our weakness, despite our powerlessness to be yours. Your sons and daughters, holy in your sight a priestly people set apart unto you entirely by what your Son has done. Make it to be our delight to know that, to confess that, to live that. And Lord, help us to encourage one another to live that. And to show the world the greatness of your power to transform lost sinners into priestly, a priestly people who love and proclaim you with all that we do. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, we can't do it. But God can cause us to do it. So let's respond by standing and singing together our confession of our need for Him in hymn number 427, I Need Thee Every Hour, 427.